All right, why don't you turn to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 17 to 19. And the message entitled, Follow Godly Examples. Um, Paul has uh, dealt with the aspect of believers' maturity. Verse 17 of chapter 3 down to chapter 4, verse 9. Now he moves to a, a number of exhortations that, um, um, that, that run in this section here. Um, Paul's first exhortation to the Philippians is that they follow men whose conduct matches the gospel, uh, consisting of, of, um, of the content that we have here in 17 to 21. And the exhortation comes in verse 17, and you have... Two explanations from verses 18 to 21. Uh, we want to look at the um, exhortation to follow godly men whose conduct matches the gospel here in only verses 17 through 19, which is characterized by three things. Let me read verse 17 to 19. <clears throat> it says, Brethren, join in following <clears throat> my example. Note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. And so Paul's exhortation to those he has been ministering to, how they should walk from verse 1 down here to verse 16 of chapter 3. And their conduct matches the gospel. And it's characterized here by three things. First, you have the proclamation to follow godly men in verse 17. Second, you have the explanation for following godly people. And that's in verse 18. And then you have the description of the ungodly people in verse 19. So he begins with the proclamation to follow godly people. 17, notice the Apostle Paul was addressing the believer. It's very important. Context is always important. Paul is speaking to those who had been born again, having the same father of the same family, the same spirit, the same mind. The word brethren, as we've seen before, Adolphus means from the, um, it comes from the word womb, which means those born of the same womb, spiritual birth, from above, as Jesus told Nicodemus. The word is found nine times as Paul addresses them as brethren in this epistle. Isn't it interesting that uh, whenever we find the word brethren in any other epistles, we know he's talking to Christians, and yet Calvinists will teach the book of Hebrews, and it says brethren, brethren, brethren. They say they weren't Christians. How dishonest can you be? <laughs> and it's incredible. Now, this is the third time that it appears in the third chapter. Verse 1, verse 13, verse 17, brethren. This is their spiritual birth by repenting from their sins and being forgiven. Just the same as you and myself. Paul is speaking to those who are qualified then and capable of obeying the exhortation. This is important. Being new 
a new creation. All things pass away. Everything becomes new. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Having a new nature. Even as 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 4 says, as his divine power has given to us all things pertaining to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him, speaking of Christ, who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Only a Christian can accomplish this. So therefore, every Christian can understand the word of God. If you were just born again, and I was teaching the book of Revelation tonight, you'd be okay. All right? You may not be able to connect all the dots, but you'll be okay. You'll understand the message. You have God's mind, His Holy Spirit, and His Word, and His nature. Just like I do. Those not born again cannot understand or obey God's Word. Therefore, we should not expect them. But when we're talking with Christians and dealing with Christians, we are not asking them something that is uh, impossible or something that's unfair. When I give you the Word of God, or we're talking, and, and, and I would exhort you, hey, you can do this. What do we usually do? Well, you don't understand my situation. Forget your situation. Are you a Christian? Then shut up. <laughs> Obey God. I'm not asking you to depend on your strength. I'm asking you to depend upon the power of the Spirit of God, which you can do. I'm asking you to reckon the old man dead, which you can do. I'm asking you to put on the mind of Christ, which you can do. Today, people have so many lame excuses. The Christians in the world, a bunch of little girls sometimes, like the people out in the world, they need safe pace and triggers. Really. We escape our responsibility. Paul, by implication recognize that those born again still have a sin nature that's why he's exhorting them and they can still be tempted and mastered by their flesh if they don't walk in the spirit right you know that this morning you got up and you chose to walk in the flesh or the spirit the minute you got up were you allowed to captivate your mind what you did when you got on the freeway and that person thought you were racing rather than to have you merge Okay? It's a choice. So what Paul is about to say is a cautious warning to them as a command. Paul called the Corinthians carnal even unto babes in Christ in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4. I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, Galatians 5, 16. So in other words, if walking in the Spirit is automatic, why exhort me? You wouldn't have to. Do you walk up to a robot in the, in the mall and, and you exhort them to say what's recorded in them? No, they do it automatically. You don't have to walk that robot and say, now don't look at the girl. It's a machine. It's a robot. You're not. You have free will. You can walk in the flesh. You can walk in the spirit. And so do I. It's a choice. And Paul understands this, that even though we have the mind of Christ, the spirit of Christ, and the word of God, and we have all this divine nature that he's given to us, we have the old man that can still rear his ugly head, but I have to choose who's going to live. 
Look at still at 17. He says the apostle was um, ordering them to follow this manner of life in Christ. Join in fellowship my example. Paul is not putting himself in the place of Christ or above Christ. He's already expressed the only thing he wants to do is be found in Christ and having his own righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ in chapter 3, verse 9. He also expressed his goal in life that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, and be conformed to his death in chapter 3, verse 10. So he's not contradicting himself. He's saying, now, I am following Christ. Follow me because I'm following Christ. He's not putting himself above Christ. Paul is telling the Philippians to imitate his godly life that is in accord with the gospel he has preached to them. Often we heard, don't, don't do as I do, do as I say. That's, you're saying, be a hypocrite like me. That's what you're saying. The phrase join in fellowship means to be a co-imitator. The word is found only this time in the New Testament. We get our word mimic from it. You know, you're doing something, your little daughter or son, trying to exactly the same, you know, like you making fun of you, trying to mimic you. That's what a mimic is. Following exactly doing exactly what someone else is doing. The um, old King James says, be followers together of me. I like that translation better. The word uh, be means to become in order to come into existence. What, were, what did Jesus preach on the Sermon on the Mount? Do attitudes or be attitudes? <laughs> be attitudes. This is an imperative present middle command to be ongoing by the obedience of the individual himself. Because he can. He is saying to them to keep their life up to date with God, pressing towards the goal like him, as he said in chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. The same root word is used in other verses. First um, Corinthians 11, 1 uh, he says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. John says, beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Third John, verse 11. Paul also is not saying he's perfect, but rather dependent and trusting God. He was thankful to God and rejoicing in spite of his situation, as he told us in chapter 1, verse 3 through 18. He said to live was Christ and to die was gain in chapter 1, verse 19 through 25. He stated to serve was a joy and not a vain thing, even to death in chapter 2, verse 12 through 18. He didn't trust in his own righteousness, but the, that of Christ. For justification before God in chapter 3, verse 4 through 11. He constantly kept pressing on knowing God had more for him in chapter 3, verse 12 through 16. He will tell them in 4, 9, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me. 
These do, and the God of peace will be with you. Wow. Anybody want to stand up and say that? I certainly can't. I haven't arrived there. <laughs> That's an incredible statement. Listen again. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Wow. Paul was a man just like you and I. He's not boasting. He's not bragging. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is not exaggeration, embellishment, or anything else. It's absolutely objective truth. Now notice at the end of 17, the Apostle Paul ordered them also to examine other believers' lives to their example. So he, he's including others. Note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Paul was declaring that there are not two kinds of Christians, but one. The word note means to fix attention upon with desire and interest in order to consider. This is an imperative command, again, present active. The idea is to confirm a person to be a Christian continuously. Note that person. This is the second command, the imperative present active, ongoing. This is supposed to be going all the time. The word is used for considering ourselves lest we also be tempted in Galatians 6.1. The word is used to mark those causing problems over the scriptures. Romans 16.17. Listen to what he says. Now I urge you, brethren, note, there's the word, those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learn and avoid them. Wow. That certainly doesn't go good in the churches today, huh? Because the church has become politically correct. They're teaching a social, cultural gospel. The command is to mark people in line with the example of Paul. Who so walk, Paul is saying, there were others who were faithfully living for the gospel. But they all should be able to be put side by side. We look differently, but we should all be living the same. We have the same book, right? Same spirit, same Lord, same nature. The word walk, peripatel, means to order one's behavior as a habit of life. It's found only this one time here. The other time is in verse 18 that we'll get to. Two times. The word is used of believers to live daily, honestly, in the spirit. Worthy of God's love, circumspectly in Christ. Romans 13, 13, Galatians 5, 16, Ephesians 4, 1, 5, 2, Colossians 2, 6. Notice Paul affirmed the proper comparison as you have us for a pattern. The plural pronoun us indicates those with Paul. He always mentions people in his epistles, 1 Thessalonians, Corinthians, Romans, pick any one of them. Silas and Timothy were with Paul when he came and established the church, remember. Epaphroditus almost died as a good example in Philippians here 2.27. Godly men. I think of the men that God has brought here through the years that are gone now. Hank Marquez was gone. 
you know, many others, his wife, and many godly men and women who have served in this ministry that we've buried. And they're with the Lord now, faithful, Pete Mornay, and many, many others. The measure is indicated by the word pattern. It's an impression left by a blow. If you've ever worked with leather work, you get your little dice and you smack them and you imprint it on there. This is what the word means. It's used of the nail prints in the hands of Jesus in John 20, 25. The word is used of the Old Testament uh, uh, individuals to learn from in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. The word is used for Timothy to be an example of the believer in 1 Timothy 4.12. Paul is saying, follow and imitate those men and women in whose lives you can see the mark and effect of the new creation as you see in us. You take Christians of the first century, and you take Christians of this 21st century, there should be no difference. None whatsoever. Well, there'll be a different dress, different hairdos, different food, but their lives should be identical. No different. Wow. There was a soldier one time in the army, Alexander the Great, whose conduct was unbecoming, to say the least. And so... One of the generals called him in and he said, Is your name Alexander? The man replied, Yes. The general commanded him, Change your life or change your name. Simple. You call yourself a Christian? You're not living Christ-like? Change your name. Don't call yourself a Christian. Am I talking about perfect? Nope. I'm just talking about being a Christian. Wow. The believer must look to godly examples to follow throughout life as children and teens looking to their fathers and mothers and family members and friends as those examples. As adults looking to other believers to live out the life of Christ through thick and thin, good times, bad times, easy times, Difficult times. As husbands and wives, those who have been married a long time, walking with God, modeling the Christ-like example through every situation. I got a, an incredible chance to see my grandchildren just show me what a Christian is. Trudy's brother just passed away yesterday. He had cancer. They gave him a year to live, and but he had a stroke on Monday, and they called us, and so we were down there at Loma Linda. And many of the people there weren't born again, and my grandchildren are there at the bed of her brother Howard, and they're talking to him and holding him because he's in a comatose state, and, and they're praying for him. And when I left yesterday, I left about 45 minutes before he passed. And a 
uh, my grandson Gage told me he went up to him, just got up to his ear and says, Uncle Howard, you need to accept Christ Jesus and then just walked him through the sinner's prayer word by word. 14. My granddaughter, 12. The other one, 10. Just praying for their uncle and being an incredible witness to the non-believers, both family and pagans. Wow. They put their grandpa to shame. <laughs> they, they didn't retreat to a safe space. They didn't want to trigger. They stepped up to the plate. The word of God, ladies and gentlemen, the power of God's spirit. Wow. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to believer in word and conduct and love and spirit and faith and purity. First Timothy 4.12 says. This is to every generation. The believer is to mark the godly example of the church leaders, the pastors who teach and serve the people. The elders, the overseers that care of the people. The ushers that um, greet and direct the people. The leaders and helpers to instruct and edify the people. The church members, the individuals who mingle with one another, all the qualifications for service are given to us in First Timothy 3 and, and Titus 1. It seems the church has thrown out those qualifications and ignored them and their qualifications for every generation for the first century church as well as one up. Nothing has changed. The believer is not to compromise or water down the word of God <clears throat> or Christianity. The leaders of the emergent church do not believe that we can learn any objective truth from the Bible, they tell us. So they just dialogue, redefining the word of God by using new vocabulary in order to appear intellectual and relevant to the culture rather than teaching the word of God. They become motivational speakers. What an insult to God. What a disservice to the people of God. Hmm. The emergent church redefines the church, calling it a campus rather than the church. This is not campus one, campus two. This is the church where we meet. You are the church. The building's just a building. The church is the people of God. Hmm. They avoid words like repent, sin, hell, judgment, or exposing the evil of homosexuality, being politically correct. The angels have to throw up. Hmm. That's why Titus gives reasons for the qualifications for godly individuals to serve. He says, holding fast the faithful word that has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, the Jews, whose mouths must be stopped. Must be stopped. Whoa. He wasn't politically correct. Who subvert whole houses, teaching things they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. 
So this is the exhortation to follow godly people. Is there anything wrong with that? What could possibly be wrong? Why are people against Christianity so much? When the Bible tells us that we're to forgive, we're to love, we're to be compassionate, we're to help people, we're to give our life up for people. Those are all good things. But the world's evil. They want nothing to do with that. Next, in verse 18, it gives us the explanation for following godly people. The Apostle Paul, notice, indicated the reason for exhorting them to mimic godly people. For many walk. Paul declared that there were many living contrary to godliness, yet same. They were Christians. The word many uh, means simply a large number, no set number or as intended. The idea is a large enough number uh, giving a bad and false representation of the genuine form of Christianity. The word is used two other times in the epistle. In Philippians 1.23, For I am not, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Notice Paul depicted that this was their habit of life. Uh, the word walk again, peripateo, as we've looked already in verse 17, means to make one's way and uh, the way they conduct their life on a regular basis, a habit of life. Um, this is who they are by their fallen nature, not by a new divine nature. The tense is the indicative present active. This is the second and only other time the word appears in the letter. Uh, the first, again, we mentioned was verse 17. Um, notice the sharp contrast between their manner of life habit. It can't be missed. Godliness versus ungodliness. You remember, we used to live ungodly. And now you're a Christian, you live godly. You still have the potential for ungodliness, but you choose to live godly. I used to live ungodly all the time. All right? That was a choice. That's all I could do. Now with the new birth, I have a greater potential. Notice the Apostle Paul indicated this was not a new warning or command. Don't miss this. Of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping. He had told them often, meaning frequently he had warned them about these false individuals. The tense is an imperative, active, repetitive statement. Time after time. What does a father do to his child? 18 years. He repeats and warns over and over. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't hang out with that guy. Be careful. Do Is it because he hates his son? No, because he loves his son. The pastor teacher never ceases to warn the sheep about spiritual counterfeits and deceivers. If he doesn't warn the sheep, he's not a shepherd. He's a hireling. 
Paul warned the Ephesian elders that his departure, remember, that savage wolves would come in. And also of themselves, there would rise up false teachers to attract disciples to themselves. And um, he taught them and warned them. For three years with tears, he said in Acts 20, verse 29 to 31. He was now at the present warning them once again, but with great sorrow. The tense is the present active. So a pastor teacher again constantly warns with a sorrowful heart regarding the ungodly. Not with some delight. When I mention certain false teachers, I don't do it because I hate them. I do because I love you. They may be the nicest guy. I'm sure some of these guys are funny. I bet they're great people. But when I judge their words and compare them to the word of God, I have to expose them. As I would want them to expose me if I'm off the wall. As a parent, do you, do you want somebody to lie to your son rather than warn them? You would get furious if you found out somebody was lying to your son regarding deception. Hmm. But we don't spiritually. We say, oh, wait, he's unloving. He's just a bitter old man. And we feel all these things. The truth of the matter is that the majority of people don't love truth. They don't like Christ. They love themselves more than they love Christ. They love their standard more than the standard of the word of God. The word weeping simply means to mourn, weep or lament for their eternal separation and dangerous deceptive influence by their choosing. So while there is, an, there, there is a righteous anger to expose, there is also a broken heart knowing they're blind, lost, and they're deceivers, and they're being deceived, and they're deceiving others. And if they die in that state, they will be eternally separated from God. Nobody... I want nobody to go to hell. If God was so merciful to me who deserve hell, then I can't exclude anybody. I'm to preach the gospel to them. The same word is used for John when he uh, saw no one worthy to loosen the seal of the scroll in Revelation 5.4 as he wept. Notice in 18 still the apostle Paul indicated the many were dangerous to the gospel, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul does not identify the individuals by name. Some identify these as the Judaizers that Paul has mentioned in chapter 3, verse 2. Others, Epicureans. Still others, Gnostics or just professing Christians. Whatever their name is, it doesn't matter. It's how they live and what they believe that's important that's given to us here. You understand? Certainly the Judaizers certainly were included, but there could be others. Paul just says they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Enemies, hostile, hating, or opposing another. 
They're hostile towards God. Romans 8, 7 makes that very clear. They are hostile towards the plan and manner of redemption of sinners. The word cross means an upright stake. The instrument of the most cruel punishment for a person to die by. The Medes and the Persians developed it. In 519 B.C., Darius I, king of Persia, crucified 3,000 political opponents in Babylon. The Carthaginians refined it. The Greeks adopted it. Then the Romans. The particular crosses of Christ marked that well. Christos, the anointed Messiah. They do not believe in the Messiah who died on the cross, as Jesus said he did in John 3, 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the servant of the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Wow. They don't believe it. They do not believe in the atonement of Christ for the sins of the world by his death on the cross. That God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him in 2 Corinthians 5.21. They do not believe in salvation offered through the cross, but think it foolishness, as 1 Corinthians 1.18 says. They do not believe in the only way and the only name, Jesus Christ, John 14.6, Acts 4.12. The gospel is very narrow. God is very narrow-minded. He doesn't say, my way or the highway. He says, my way or you'll end up in hell. The highway would be better. But that's not the outcome. Hmm. They do not believe in the only sufficiency to be forgiven. John 19.30, Jesus said, it is finished from the cross. Wow. They do not believe in the crucified model life, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Wow. They do not want Jesus to reign over them. Luke 19.27. They want to reign over their own lives. You remember God sent the man of God to pronounce a curse over Jeroboam's idolatrous altar at Bethel. And um, God told him not to go back the same way, not to go with anybody else. But there was an old prophet in the region, and uh, he heard about him, and he asked where the prophet was, so he followed him around, and he found him. He said, hey, are you that prophet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, listen, I'm a prophet too. And uh, the angels, you know, God is your God and the same God and the angel told me to, for you to come back with me. And he goes, oh, okay, I'll go back. Well, what he just told the prophet was contrary to what God told him. But he didn't examine it, so he went back and then God judged him and had a lion kill him. You have the word of God, that's the plumb line. When somebody tells you something that contradicts the word of God, get away from them. Don't follow them. Confront them. Not very loving. Well, Jesus said, listen, you stumble a little child, put a stone around your neck and be cast into the sea. 
Jesus is meek and mild. Jesus hates deceivers with a righteous hatred. Do you understand? Because people are deceiving people for eternity. Nothing has changed. There are many today that are um, enemies of the cross of Christ, yet they call themselves Christians. Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses call themselves Christians. They are not. Catholics that still believe and practice the dogmas of Rome and hold them in higher esteem than the Bible. They're not Christians. I was raised a Catholic. I've seen Catholicism to the bone. People walking on their knees as a sacrifice, bleeding. Down in South America, the Philippines, they crucify men at Easter. Sincere, but sincerely wrong. God never intended none of that. The plumb line, once again, is the word of God, ladies and gentlemen. The multitudes of people that call themselves Christians but do not live the word of God in their lives but contradict the words of the scriptures. Once again, people, oh, well, we are not supposed to judge. No, you are supposed to judge. In fact, you're commanded to judge. Judge not lest you be judged. What measure you, me you judge, you'll be measured back to you again in, in Matthew 7. We're going to get to that. That's speaking about a critical, sincere spirit. You're finding fault at all times. That's what he doesn't want you to do. But to judge, you're commanded to judge. Examine if you're in the faith. Examine yourself. First yourself, then others. What's the standard? The Word of God. Simple. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. And he who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son, Second John 9. Let me ask you a question. If there's no possibility of you not abiding, why even suggest it? You're going to tell that to a non-believer? He's not in Christ. How can he abide? Who's he talking to? Christians. If he's telling Christians, you abide in Christ or you will not abide in God, he's talking to Christians. If there's deceivers, then people can be deceived, both believer and non-believer. All the warnings in the New Testament are to believers. You evangelize the non-believer, you warn the believer to abide. But evil men and impostors shall grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. For 2 Timothy 3.13 then there are those who are used by God and influential to the church, but they are deceived and now deceive others from the faith. First uh, Timothy 1, 19 and 20 says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage a good warfare, having faith and good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. Of whom Hymenius, <gasps> Paul names names, and Alexander, who I delivered to Satan that they do not learn to blaspheme. First Timothy 1 19 20. Let me ask you a question. Do we turn non believers over to Satan? No, they already belong to him. We turn 
deceived and sinful Christians that don't repent over to Satan. In hope of what? That they repent. Is that clear? Simple. This you know, that all those in Asia have turned away from me. Are they non-believers? No. Among whom are, Phyge- oh, there he goes again, naming names, Phygelas and Hermogenes. Second Timothy 1, 15. These men were dangerous to the church because they had been used in the church. For Demas, oh, there he goes again, has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Second Timothy 4.10. Put the name Demas in your computer. Find them all over with Paul. Are you saying that now Paul is using non-believers? You're never born again? Which way you want it? Can't have it both ways. Hmm. The shepherd of the flock is the one responsible for protecting the sheep in the church. Paul prophesied, 1 Timothy 4.1, listen, he's prophesying. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of the demons. Some will depart from the faith. You cannot depart from something you were never at. You cannot depart from the sanctuary unless you're in it. He's talking to believers, not non-believers. You cannot get out of your car unless you're in it. Paul says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but according to their own desires because they have itchy ears they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you... Be watchful in all things. Endure affliction. Do the work in evangelism. Fulfill your ministry. 2 Timothy 4, 1-5. Peter puts it this way, but there were also false prophets among the people. Even there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. Wow. And bring on themselves swift destruction. Listen, listen. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Second Peter 2, 1 through 3. They're in the church. The following will be from within the church. The falling away will be from the faith. Wow. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they will allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the one who have actually escaped from those who live in error. Second <gasps> Peter 2, 18. Who are being deceived? The ones who literally escaped the world and sin are those non-believers they're Christians wow so much for Calvinism <laughs> it's shot through with holes if you examine it through the scriptures Peter warns for if after they have escaped listen listen if after they have escaped speaking the same people the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Are you going to tell me those are non-believers? Absolutely not. John puts it this with little children. It is the last hour. And as you have heard 
that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists um, have come, by which we know that it is the last hour, 1 John 2.18. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is deceiver and Antichrist, 2 John verse 7. The ultimate Antichrist will come. Right now is the spirit of Antichrist. So this is the explanation for following godly people. I think it's a pretty good explanation. <laughs> Notice third and last, the description of the ungodly people. Verse 19, the apostle Paul identified their destiny related to their ungodly character, whose end is destruction. Paul revealed the final end of the ungodly. Mark it well. The word destruction means loss or perdition. The word is used of the oil poured over the head of Jesus and disciples thought they were indignant because they thought it wasn't a good use of it in Matthew 26, 8. <laughs> Could have been sold. The word was used um, for their faith in the gospel by their adversaries in chapter 1, verse 28, um, which they thought was with perdition. <laughs> the ungodly at death will end eternally separate from God. Now, who can rejoice over that? Who, who, who has joy over that? Nobody. Every person will live for eternity, be they Christian or non-Christian. People often say, well, I don't want to live eternity. You don't have a choice. Do you have a choice of being born? You don't have a choice about living eternity. You're going to live eternally in heaven or in hell. One of the two places. The unbeliever will end up in eternity where God never intended him to be. The lake of fire, which was prepared for Satan and his angel in Matthew 25, 41. Paul does not teach annihilation of the ungodly, nor does the Bible. Many people teach it, but the Bible doesn't. Annihilation teaches that at death, people just, that's it, you cease to exist. If that's true, let's go party. That's not true. A very convenient lie to dismiss man's responsibility as a sinner plus all the wrong and evil committed in their life being guilty before God, Romans 3.19. A very blasphemous teaching calling God a liar for he says that it is appointed unto man to die and then the judgment in Hebrews 9.27. The Bible teaches one of two things will occur when a person dies physically. They will be instantly present before the Lord when you give your last breath, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 through 8, or you will be instantly present in hell in torment, Luke 16. I don't say that with any joy. I say that as a very, very sharp warning if you don't know Jesus Christ. You might be out there somewhere in the world where the radio is blasting right now. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you need to repent of your sins and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not put it off. The ungodly partake of the second death in the lake of fire, Revelation 21, 8. Now notice the Apostle Paul identified their devotion, revealing their ungodly character, whose God is their belly. So Paul used the word, very broad in its meaning uh, that, uh, throughout the scriptures. Um, the belly simply means the whole belly, the entire cavity. Um, the word includes the upper and lower belly, even the womb, the sexual region. 
Uh, it appears 23 times in the New Testament. And Paul is most likely using the term as a euphemism for living for sinful natural desires contrary to the design and the purposes of God, the way many of us used to live before we were Christians. And the world does so. Certainly food and drink can be abused. Even food can be bad, right? Um, you eat more than you need. You know, you eat bad stuff all the time and then, you know, it hurts you. Um, the eye and the ear gate to tantalize one's lust and licentiousness certainly is a problem if we're not born again. Um, the sexual is misused and abused outside of marriage. Certainly, this is part of that which is intended. Um, the phrase describes a character that caters and lives for self-satisfaction, pleasing one's fleshly desire and will in rebellion and disobedience to the word and the will of God. Listen to Romans 16, 17, and 18. says, Now, I urge you, brethren, note those that cause divisions among you or offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. What do parents tell their kids? Don't speak to strangers. Don't get in the car, right? Same thing. Notice the apostle Paul identified their delight magnifying their ungodly character. Listen to their words, whose glory is their shame. Paul declared they are arrogant and proud. The word glory doxa is used of God's splendor, magnificence, his majesty. The word is also used here in the context for man, um, and it means to boast or to praise themselves taking credit and exalting their evil deeds and reputation. Paul declared they were arrogant and proud over their shame, very specific. The word shame means feelings of guilt, confusion, and something that brings disgrace and dishonor. And they turn all this disgrace and shame and violence and honor, and they parade it as something that's great and nothing wrong with it, and they take it to their own prestige and glory to boast in it. Wow. Understanding what was done was morally and ethically wrong, causing a person to not want people to know, keeping a secret. That's what shame is. The way it is used in our text, it accentuates their ungodliness. They have a false standard of godliness they are concerned and absorbed with their own concept of honor, righteousness, and justice, which is shame before God. Remember that white girl four or five years ago that saying she was African-American? American? She was a professor at university or something? Well, you can say you're Mexican all you want, but if you're literally white, you're just not Mexican. Or you can be a black person and say, well, I'm white. Well, you know, people are going to look at you kind of funny. Well, this is what these guys are doing. Wow. Notice the apostle Paul identified 
their determination resulting from their ungodly character there in verse 19, who set their mind on earthly things. So Paul affirms their fallen sinful nature. The phrase set their mind means to think or to direct one's thoughts and imaginations. Of the 26 times Paul uses the word 12 appear in this letter. This is the ninth. This is the outcome of our own deceitful and desperate wicked heart, as Jeremiah 79 says, if we yield to it. This is their natural bent, being dead in trespasses and sins, even being religious. The word is comprised of the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, 1 John 2.16. The believer's weapons are not carnal, but spiritual bringing down the strongholds of the enemy that come against the knowledge of God, bringing those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ, as 2 Corinthians 10, 4-5 says. Notice Paul indicated the focus of their thinking, earthly things. The phrase earthly things refers to all that exists in the physical realm. The spiritual is not their concern The spiritual is considered foolishness. Nothing wrong with the physical. But when you use it in a way that God didn't intend it or that it replaces God, it's wrong. The earthly sphere is where they live and make decisions on. The physical, the material is what they trust and live for on earth. They live for the here and the now. Their emotions and feelings are involved in their decisions resulting in regrettable consequences. And ladies, you are top on the feeding list there. You're more emotional than men and you're easily, more easily deceived than a man because of emotions. It's just that simple. Am I a male chauvinist pig? No, I'm just telling you the truth. It's the way it is. The harsh, unabashed, immoral, and lewd lives of and conducts of many young and older women today, as well as men, is a perfect example of what Paul is talking about here. It's always interesting to me how people will believe they're going to heaven at death and not hell, though they've lived ungodly. And what do you base it on? They deny the existence of God. They lie. They steal. They cheat. They fornicate. They commit adultery. And they still are going to go to heaven. Oh, wow. That's great. Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries of the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you, in other times past, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5, 19-21. Is that where you're living? You won't inherit the kingdom of God. If that's your matter of lifestyle, you'll never inherit the kingdom of God. You can come to church all you want. You can call yourself a Christian all you want. We live in a world that promotes the very slogan, whose belly is their God. <laughs> America probably has more overweight dogs than The rest of the world has overweight people. We probably throw away more food every day than the rest of the world eats. Junk food. High-end restaurants make millions. 
Paul says, God forbid that I should glory in anything but the cross of Christ. Galatians 6, 14. The world of our day does not glory or boast in things that are good, moral, honorable, or virtuous, but on that which is depraved. A young woman of the day leads in perversion, flaunting her body and her sexuality and her experience and, and is, feels comfortable in her skin, so to speak, they say. <laughs> Rather than being ashamed and humiliated. Everything is promoted and sold through sex, whether it's a lollipop or jeans or whatever else. Paul gives a picture of mankind professing themselves to be wise to become fools, and he gives the whole catalog there in Romans chapter 1, verse 22 through 28, of women lusting for women, men for men, doing things unseemly, and their judgment is their due. Worshiping the creature more than the creator, which is blessed forevermore. Wow. The torment of those who end up in hell and the lake of fire is day and night for all eternity. Listen, in the presence of the angels and the Lamb of God, Revelation 4, 9 through 11. Satan does not run hell. Jesus does. Or the lake of fire. This is the description of ungodly people. That's where we used to be. Aren't you glad you're saved? <laughs> this is the exhortation to follow godly men whose conduct matches the gospel. Characterized by the proclamation to follow godly people, the explanation for following godly people, and the description of ungodly people. He just lays it out. That you and I might learn and grow and obey. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. We thank you, Lord. We pray you continue to deal with our hearts. We thank you for your word. And we pray for anybody listening, Lord, and that is here, that you would just save them. They would call on your name. If you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you to hear the gospel. To open your heart and repent from your sins. If you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ, this is your prayer of repentance. You can ask him right now and he's going to save you and forgive you. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.